and welcome to Maths Talk, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning. My name's Leanne McMahon. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the most famous maths teacher in Australia, TV star, author, and multiple award winner, including the prestigious Choose Maths Award, the slightly more well-known Australia's local hero at the Australian of the Year Awards, and was a top 10 finalist in the Global Teacher Prize, amongst many others, Eddie Wu. Welcome, Eddie. Hi, Leanne. Thank you so much for that uh, overly kind welcome. It's lovely to be here. Look, the first thing I like to ask all of my guests is, how did your history bring you to where you are today? And what inspires you to keep going? Yeah, I've definitely had a winding path to where I am today, Leanne. And if you asked Eddie from, you know, say, for example, 20 years ago when I was finishing high school, or even 10 years ago where I was a, you know, a relatively happy classroom teacher, even five years ago, which is pretty much the time before I started the, the current role that I've been with the New South Wales Department of Education, all of those Eddies from the past could not have told you where me right now would be. Or they would have said, yeah, like, that's funny, right? Like, that doesn't seem anything within the, um, the realm of possibility. Uh, but certainly, if you go all the way back to me at school, I was someone who always enjoyed learning. And I think that's a big part of why I, going into education and teaching has been a very natural fit for me, because I always think of educators as the lead learners in their classrooms, lecture theaters, tutorial rooms, and a conference. That's what we are. And we're there to present our co-learning journey with the people who we want to help educate. But I do know that a lot of the terms that my professional journey has taken, I'd love to take credit for them. I'd love to say I was strategic and I had a five-year plan, but I didn't. I saw opportunities. I've presented with wonderful mentors and leaders who saw, I guess, potential. And it's been really wonderful being able to sort of ride this magic carpet over the last little while. That's given me so many open doors to work with teachers around the country and even around the world. That sounds fantastic. In your TED talk, you talk about being an outsider in mathematics. So do you think this is a common thing? And how did you move from the outside to the very cool maths teacher that you are now? Sure. I'm, of course. You know, I definitely know my, my three children would have, they would bristle at me being described as cool, but that's okay. That's what kids do of their parents. I think that that journey from the outside is far more common than probably we would imagine it to be because if you're an outsider, like I'm very happy to admit that I am because it's, it's very hard to hide. Um, when you talk about my um, story from the past, which I'll, I'll address in a second, that's, that's kind of something which I often find people will admit to me with a little bit of embarrassment. Like it's not a thing that people are open to say, like that's, that's not what they lead with, you know, it's like, hi, I'm Eddie and I don't belong in this world. I'm someone who has come here, not perhaps expecting that this is where I would end up. Despite the fact that as you point out accurately, that's pretty much the way that I start my TED talk, but that was really intentional. The reason why I view myself as an outsider, I still kind of do because the world in which I feel at home is the world of uh, stories and, and narrative. If you, for example, this is a, a weird way to think about it, but if you have a look at my podcast feed, I'm a bit of a, an audio junkie, partly because I love reading, but I don't have that much time to do it. So if you have a look at my podcast feed, what you'll find is uh, it's dominated by storytelling, uh, by history, by, by, by news as well. But, but I love to try and understand and untangle why it is that things are 
And I, I've done that. I've spent the most time in my personal and professional life doing that in the sphere of what you would call the humanities. So that, that's kind of what makes me an outsider. You ask, you know, well, how did I sort of make this entryway into being the, the maths teacher that I am today? I, I think there's probably a couple of things that feed into that. Number one, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? So it was the practical uh, challenge of becoming a teacher, recognizing that, again, very practically speaking, where the teaching profession did 20 years ago and still today need, you know, uh, to address this undersupply in mathematics education. And the people who I spoke to at the University of Sydney, where I enrolled to become a teacher, they knew that, that, that I, which I didn't. And they said, you know, this is a path that you could take, which would actually be really helpful to the system and to communities. Why did you go in this direction? And when you challenge yourself to teach something, you learn to understand it much better. I think that's something which a lot of people. So there's that, that practical side of things. But I think the other side of it, which I've reflected more on over the last few years, is that mathematics is much broader than I think most people give it credit for. Certainly than I thought of when I was at school. Uh, I think it's very common for people to have a very narrow view of mathematics. It's numbers, it's equations, it's formulas. I've encountered hundreds and thousands of people who are involved in personal activities or professional work that is deeply interwoven with mathematics, but they will kind of push to one side. They'll say, that's not really maths because that's this other thing that I love. It's music or it's knitting or it's poetry. And they'll say, that's, that's not actually mathematics. And I'll say, but, but actually there's plenty of maths in there if you have your eyes open to it. So I think realizing that myself has been my entryway into becoming the maths teacher that I am now. Mm. And that ability to bring the real life into the classroom is such a difficult part of maths. Instead of having 400 watermelons, to actually show that mathematics is actually linked to the real parts of life. Yeah, it's, you're right. It is a challenge. And I think that's why Dan Meyer, I think, speaks about fake world maths, when he talks about those 400 watermelon problems. It's dressed up in the language and the context of the everyday, but it's clearly contrived. Even if you were someone who had, a, had to buy 400 watermelons to make juice for a huge conference, you wouldn't solve a problem in the way that the textbook asks you to do it, right? You would use other tools, you'd use a spreadsheet, all those kinds of things. So you're right to acknowledge that challenge. But at the same time, you know, say for example, I know we hate talking about COVID and this global pandemic that has changed all of our lives. However, I think it provides this amazing example over the last three years of this kind of mathematical reality that's been all around us that we just kind of not paid attention to. You know, when we think about how a disease spreads across the world, like every year there's a flu season, right? And the way that we model how that spreads is all mathematical. The way that we understand the growth of something over time. I remember the first time I saw on actual just regular mainstream news there was a logarithmic graph on the news. And people were like, that scale of one, 10, 100, 1,000. People just look and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What does this graph mean? I'm like, do you, do you know how much mathematics is underneath that and how much there is to explore? So I think that's actually helped us to uh, highlight where there's mathematics. It's just sort of hiding beneath the surface. And if we have our eyes open to it, we can see how much it enriches and empowers our lives to know and understand mathematics. Yeah, I agree. So I introduced you as Australia's most well-known maths teacher, 
And I would add that probably Australia is most admired by teachers and students. Your keep explaining captures your enthusiasm for the subject and really allows students to grasp the topic. When it comes down to it, your videos are a brilliant example of direct instruction in action. Now, many teachers see this method as old-fashioned and a dichotomy has been set up in which the old direct instruction is pitted against the new inquiry learning. You've moved into teacher professional learning in addition to your teaching, and I'm wondering if you'd talk about this so-called dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, in your, in your question, Leanne, it's kind of interesting. I could almost hear the quote marks, right? Because it's a, I think... It's a, it's a false dichotomy that's been set up by the fact that, and I've sort of wrestled with this over the last, like since I've started teaching actually, because it's not just inquiry learning versus direct instruction. It seems like all the way through all the education arguments that have been had over the last number of decades, there's always this kind of this versus that argument to have. It's like, is there, is it collaboration or is it sort of individualistic learning? Is it? Is it online platforms or is it all about face-to-face and in-person? And I think that, you know, I'm always blown away by the fact that if you're an average high school teacher, you teach 150 students and there's incredible diversity across that range when you think about ages and backgrounds and prior knowledge. You've got uh, 150 unique people. And why would we think that there's a single right approach that just uh, works all the time across that incredible diversity of a student population. I mean, that's just, it's just wild when you sort of frame it in those terms. Now, I acknowledge though, at the same time, I think the reason why as human beings, we sort of so often find ourselves in this kind of dichotomous argument is that, well, us human beings, we love to see things in simple terms. And I'm sure so many of us have gone through the journey as I know I have in my own sort of personal development as a teacher. When I used to do a thing, and then I realized I perhaps had a moment of epiphany or I had a crisis in the classroom and I realized that way of doing things was incredibly unhelpful. And actually there was a whole different direction I should go in that I've discovered or perhaps someone else showed to me. And that, that very strong contrast in a person's uh, own journey in teaching can set up that dichotomy. I, I'll, I'll give you an example of that for myself. I know that when I first started teaching, the mathematics faculty that I entered was full of incredibly experienced and expert teachers. They were all old enough to be my parents. And they kind of treated me, I think, as like, oh, look, little Eddie who doesn't know anything. And they really looked after me, right? One of the things I was always amazed by was that you could ask them, like I observed them in the classroom doing this. Students would ask them a question and they would say instantly without hesitation, Oh, yes, this is an interesting problem. I remember this from the 1995 HSC when it was question seven and lots of students had trouble with it. And I think, how, how can you possibly have this encyclopedic knowledge? And then, of course, after that, they would just flawlessly and smoothly give the perfect answer to that question. And I thought, wow, one day, one day I hope I can be a teacher that has that breadth and depth of knowledge that I can just instantly give that, that sort of correct answer, right? And so probably for the first three or four years of my journey as an educator, I thought that my growth as a teacher was about how good I was at supplying accurate answers to my students. Now, of course, no one's going to argue with the fact that 
being able to answer students accurately is a good thing for teachers to do. But then it's a kind of cross into that sort of five to 10 year range where I, you know, after five years, I was like, yeah, I've taught a lot of these syllabuses multiple times. I am familiar with these kinds of problems. I've encountered these kind of classic examples that are so good for illustrating issues to students. But then I realized that when a student asked me a question, if I instantly gave them the right answer, one of the things I was doing was actually being too helpful. And I was short-circuiting this student's, like I was depriving this student of the opportunity to do the thinking themselves and therefore do the learning. And I kind of became unknowingly, inadvertently obsessed with kind of showing off how smart and clever I was, like, look, I have the right answer. And that's actually not helping students learn at all. And so I, I sort of made this transition from thinking about, I don't want to be just good at answering. I want to be good at questioning and eliciting a student's own understanding. Now, those two things are not a dichotomy, but it can feel like it sometimes. And I feel as though this direct instruction, inquiry, learning conversation often falls into this same trap. And so I think that it's a matter of knowing when's the right tool, who are the right students to use them with, which topics and which concepts within topics are more well suited to one approach versus another. And how do we how do we connect them together so that they, there's a dynamic between them where we can sort of choose cleverly what students need and when, I, I think that's really the key question to answer in any classroom. Yeah. That mentoring is so important. Can you talk a bit more about how we, as the more experienced teachers, can mentor younger teachers? Yeah. No, I'd love to because especially given that my role with the New South Wales Department of Education, the lion's share of what I spend my time on is leading something called the Mathematics Growth Team, which essentially is a an instructional leadership and mentoring program because we know that there is plenty of professional learning to be given to teachers. Every teacher is on a journey of lifelong learning. How do we learn best? Well, there's all kinds of ways that we can do that independently and off our own bat. And, you know, I talked about podcasts before and reading, getting to conferences, attending in services and all those kinds of things. But so much of teaching is about the social process of being in community. I mean, teaching itself is something which even if we as a teacher are working in the classroom alone, we're in this group of 24 or 30 students who we're working alongside. Learning and teaching are always this dynamic relational process. And so the Mathematics Road Team is all about embedding teachers in schools. Um, all of my team members run professional learning from a school-based point of view. They all have a teaching load rather than being sort of removed from the classroom. We think that's really important for developing that authenticity and, and rapport with the teachers that they support. But you've identified something that I think is a real, it's a real gap in how we as a system, as systems around uh, the country, indeed around the world, how we help support our teachers. I, I know that I wouldn't be, pick a small fraction of your choice, a half, a third, a quarter of the teacher that I am today, if not for the influence of teachers who have been teaching longer than I've been alive. And then just say, you know what, Eddie, here is not only a resource that might be useful to you, but here is why it's a good resource. And here is how you can use it in the classroom in an effective way. Because in fact, you know, no matter how great a task is, if you do not know how to craft an experience for students around that activity, it's not going to be um, impactful to the students. And by contrast, 
even the most uh, boring, plain worksheet can actually be turned into something interesting and challenging for students if the teacher knows how to use it appropriately. So I kind of don't really subscribe to that idea that there is uh, a perfect kind of resource out there or there are some resources which are just terrible, you should never use them. I remember, say for example, textbooks, which I think sometimes get a bad rap because they are so often used poorly. I remember as a beginning teacher, finding textbooks such an incredible resource to draw upon and they helped me scaffold my thinking when I didn't know where to go and how to even begin an explanation. Now, I made sure that the textbook was not the exclusive place that I went to be able to develop that thinking for myself, but I was standing on the shoulders of giants when I could do that. And mentoring is really supercharging that in a personal and relational way and just having another person with more experience or even just different experience, like having peers of mine who could enter my classroom and just spot things that I would never have imagined. Things that particularly as teachers, we all sort of get into a, a pattern or a rut. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from teaching and recording my own teaching for the last 10 years is there are little turns of phrase or things I do in the classroom. Like, I can't believe I do that, but I have objective evidence. I can't argue with it, right? Having a colleague who can cast their eyes over um, our practice, there's nothing that uh, helps us change and improve the way that we teach in as powerful or as deep and profound way as a colleague can. So having said that, we have limited time and funds available for professional learning. Where would you go? What would you do if you were told you got to do some professional learning? This is a tricky question to answer because I feel like I'm standing at a buffet and I'm like, I have, I have terrible choice paralysis when it comes to choosing what to eat at a really great restaurant. And this feels like a similar kind of situation because if I really only had time to do one thing, which actually is not, I mean, it's not an unrealistic situation at all in terms of um, the available, like disposable time that a teacher has to select what their professional learning can be. And I'm as well thinking not just about time limitations. I'm also thinking about practical and logistical uh, limitations. A lot of the teachers in schools that I work with, they're in regional and remote areas, and they may have access to funds to be able to attend a conference or a professional learning workshop, but they, they won't be released by their school because there isn't a body available to do, you know, provide relief for their classes. So it's kind of like, yeah, great, but not really. I guess probably I, I would say two things, which is kind of cheating. You asked me to pick one, but the first one is the one we already talked about. I think the best professional learning resource that we can possibly have is our colleagues sitting beside us in the staff room. And some of the most powerful conversations I've ever had have been, you know, the bell goes and the classroom next door to mine, the teacher and uh, who's in that classroom and I, we walk out and we've gone a three minute walk to the staff room. And I will say to them, Ian, that lesson was a train wreck. Like I... I put so much preparation into it. I thought that activity would be awesome. And as soon as we were just not getting it or they were disengaged or whatever it was. And in that three minutes, they would just give me an angle or a perspective or sympathy or another idea or even just an encouragement to persevere because sometimes I was on the right track. I just hadn't developed the skill to use that kind of activity or, or practice in the classroom yet. So just be patient with yourself, Eddie. Like give yourself a bit of time to develop in that way. Our colleagues are the best professional learning resource that we can have. And so being able to access them and know to do it and have the courage and the 
psychological safety and vulnerability to do that, I think is critical. So number one, I think there's a lesson there for reaching out. But number two, I think there's a, a lesson there for being that safe space for a colleague. I know I've worked with teachers who I would be afraid to be open uh, and um, honest about how bad a lesson I just had, because I think uh, they're going to, they're going to think I'm an idiot, right? And they're just going to look down on me. And so we have a place to, to not be that colleague, to be someone who's like, yeah, I have made that mistake myself. Or I remember what I was trying to work out how to do that years ago as well. Here's what I did that might help you, right? But I guess to add one other um, piece to the puzzle, something that I think is way more accessible than uh, most teachers give it credit for, which is to access our colleagues. But to do that in the, the kind of structured, deliberate way, that purposeful way that can really happen when we pick up a really good book together and read that. Now, I'm under no illusions that even though I want every teacher that I work with to be accessing the research and evidence base around what effective pedagogy looks like, I also know that lots of academic writing out there is it's, it's hard to access and it takes time that uh, your everyday classroom teacher is really strapped for, right? What I think is wonderful is that um, these days we have so much more access to, you know, just off the top of my head, uh, Peter Lillardale building thinking classrooms, Craig Barton's How I Wish I Taught Maths, Joe Bowler's Mathematical Mindsets. We just have so many things which we can get off the shelf, just order it from Amazon or Booktopia. And don't worry about like, I've got to read this whole thing. Just, just read five pages and, and get your colleague to read the same five pages and then just chat about it. It is the simplest, easiest thing to do. I, I often will pick up a book in the bookstore and I'll flick through it to see like, am I just going to encounter walls of text or, or is this engagingly written? Are there illustrations that make this easy to digest? And we do now have heaps of access to that. Or even if you're like, I don't want to pick up a book. I told you about podcasts before. Craig Barton has his own podcast, which is amazing. Those kinds of things. And then having that discussion with our colleagues, that's a really powerful catalyst, I think. So I encourage that to everyone who's listening out there right now. I mean, you're doing a great job listening to this podcast, I hope. Step one. Yes, exactly. Here you are. We'll add Max Talk to that list of podcasts. Exactly. There's, there's something amazing there in terms of, you know, one of the things that the Mathematics Growth Team does is that, you know, how do we know that we're having impact in a school? And um, obviously we're always focused on improving student learning outcomes. Yeah. But there's a, what I like to call the long runway in between changed classroom practice and, you know, some of the improved student learning outcomes, which are easiest to measure. Because say, for example, if you have a look at something like the higher school certificate in New South Wales, right? It's really useful as a metric because so many students do it. You can compare different schools and it's, it's fabulous and rigorous, but you know, a band six result, the highest sort of, you know, academic sort of range of scoring that you can get in any kind of subject that doesn't just turn up after like a month of work with a teacher that's years in the making. And it's not just years in the making, it's multiple teachers work contributing to the knowledge and skills and the foundation that you lay for a student before they arrive at years 11 and 12 and start embark on that course. And so one of the ways that we have a look at how we know we're having impact that our, my team members, my instructional leaders, we call them traders, how we know that the traders are having impact within a school and this culture 
is we look at this metric that we uh, gained from this Californian research paper into teacher social networks that discusses this thing called depth of talk. And it is exactly what you were talking about, Leanne. It's what's the nature of the conversation and dialogue between teachers? Are they just talking about photocopying and about, you know, managing classroom behavior and things like that? Or are they talking about pedagogy and trying to understand why it is that a particular way of teaching something is more effective at developing student learning than some other task? That's really sophisticated, right? And so being able to access colleagues to have that kind of dialogue I think is really important and it has a bearing on the, the energy that you've been to the classroom as well. The team that you run in New mm. South Wales, mm. is there an equivalent in other states? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So is there an equivalent to the Mathematics Grow team in other states? So there are versions of these kind of embedded in schools, focused on professional learning and uh, curriculum leadership type roles. There are versions of these in uh, most jurisdictions, but uh, there's nothing quite like the mathematics growth team that is, is, you know, systemic. You've got, obviously got level three teachers in places like WA, Victoria has master teacher models and what have you. But one of the things we're trying to do is produce that model at scale and in a consistent way, and even exploring that for other key learning areas, because it's not just mathematics that can benefit from instructional leadership, obviously. So we're in a pilot program at the moment, and even though we took inspiration from a lot of past models that have been implemented by different states and territories and also work in the primary space because we're, we're a 7 to 12 focused initiative, but we work across K to 12 because mathematics is a continuum K to 12. We, as far as I can tell, are, are quite new and that's why we're really excited about doing research and providing evidence about why this is an impactful model of professional learning and mentoring. And uh, we actually just recently have created this academic partnership with the University of New South Wales, who are going to be developing sort of this research case around what parts of our program are impactful and why, so that we can um, present that as a case for, you know, business transformation. If, you know, education departments want to incorporate this is part of how they develop and deliver professional learning, uh, we're really excited to hopefully be part of changing that. That's one of the problems with being a federation. Each state kind of reinvents the wheel, it would be really nice to get something a little bit national. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Look, I wanted to talk to you just to, to wrap up mm. about keeping that enthusiasm up in the class and mm. how do we keep that enthusiasm up? Yeah. Okay. I think the first thing to say, I know I've, I don't want to not answer the question, but I want to, I want to acknowledge as well that, you know, especially over the last three years, but it's not, it's not unique to, to this global pandemic. Um, teachers have been placed under incredible pressure. And the last thing I want to do as a classroom teacher myself is to throw more of a burden on people in schools pouring their heart out and exhausted and say, hey, by the way, let me give you another job. You also need to look enthusiastic when you enter the classroom, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I haven't, I haven't slept for three days. I'm trying my best, okay? So I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge that this is not... Like there's, there are systemic challenges here that no individual teacher or indeed even a school should feel like they are, are trying to carry this burden alone. And if we're not enthusiastic and excited in the classroom, that's your fault. It's like, no, 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 it's not, right? Well, let's let's uh, recognize the challenges that all teachers are facing. And, you know, a lot of the teachers that I work with, say, for example, in particular, head teachers, heads of department, 
you know, because of staffing challenges that, you know, the entire country has been encountering, those head teachers who were already strapped for time, like in New South Wales, if you want to become a head teacher, you generally get a reduction in teaching load of about 20%, which is something like a third of the time you actually need to do that job and to lead that faculty. It's crazy. But on top of that, we have laid the responsibility of saying, well, guess what? You also don't have a teacher this term for these classes. You're going to have to share that across your existing staff. You're going to be teaching more than probably you would like to on a normal load. It's really hard to be enthusiastic and passionate under those circumstances, right? So let's acknowledge that. But I would suggest two very practical things, one of which we've kind of already touched on, that I think can still help, right? Because not like those problems are going to go away in a hurry. The first one is going back to the idea of our conversations with colleagues. I've had the lovely privilege of doing a lot of work in, in the world of TV over the last few years. And one of the things I've picked up from production crews that I think is just kind of common sense is that the dynamic and energy and relationship that you have off camera, it's visible on camera. And so whenever I've been a host of a show, I think it's really important to develop some rapport with the young people or the families who are going to be sort of in the show before we're on camera together, because you can tell the difference, right? Between a host who has no idea who these people are and it's really awkward versus someone who can have a laugh and has banter and, and knows these people, right? Now, I think there's a parallel lesson that happens when we enter the classroom. I know I've lost count of the number of days when I have stood at the doorway to my classroom and thought, I'm not ready for this, right? Like I've had a miserable day. I've had a, you know, I've had a, a tough day at home or a difficult conversation with a parent and I'm, I'm not ready for this, right? But I know that I've got my colleagues who are supporting me. They're at my back. I've had a great conversation with them about an idea that I'm excited to try in the classroom. That is the mindset I'm going to bring to these students because that's what they deserve, right? And I think that you know, we all contribute to the culture and the energy of the teams that we're in. And I think we should therefore recognize that we also contribute to the culture and energy of every one of our colleagues' classrooms because you can't fake that, right? The other thing that I think practically speaking would be helpful is that I love, I, I sort of referenced this very briefly before, I love still being a learner. I love still encountering new things and being surprised by them and being delighted by the thing that I'm going to teach. Because even if I've taught it a hundred times before, I've encountered a new cool way to do it or to visualize it or for students to experience. I know this is really embarrassing, but when teaching quadratic equations to like you know, nine or 10 students, right? One of the things that we have to teach is uh, this method called completing the square. And it's this sort of algebraic kind of acrobatics that you have to do. And then you end up with this nice neat thing that you can then say the solutions to the equation. I learned how to do this when I was 15, 16 years old, and I was good at following the steps and I learned the algorithm and that was that. And I had no idea that actually the process is called completing the square because there's very literally a visual square that you draw that's incomplete. That's what the, the visual equivalent of the algebraic manipulation you're doing means. And I did not realize this all the way through school when I was at uni learning to be a teacher. I had no idea until I read it in a book by Stephen Strogans, who's this brilliant mathematician and communicator based out of Cornell University. And I was like, I can't believe I never knew this. And the next day, 
I walked into the classroom. It wasn't even a thing I was supposed to be teaching that day. I was just like, kids, I have to show you this thing. And evidently the students I was teaching to, they were year 12s. They like, they explode into rapturous like applause when they're like, I, we've never believed this ourselves before. You can't fake that. You cannot, there's something very special and authentic about having learned something yourself, which takes deliberate purposeful activity. The longer you've been a teacher, if you have taught something many, many times, the natural thing for us to do is kind of be bored with it. And I think we owe it to our students to counteract that and say, all right, you know, we're learning differentiation by first principles. What's a way that I can learn this anew, afresh, that can help me be energetic and excited about this with my students? That's something I think all of us can do. Mm. The same sort of thing happened to me. It was well after my 20th year of teaching and the head of maths brought out algebra tiles. I'd never seen them. Did not understand that quadratics were squares. Yep. Yeah. It's just wild, right? And manipulatives in year 10, crazy. I could talk about any of this all day, but we do have to draw a line somewhere. This is having a good time. Exactly. I'd like to thank you, Eddie. It has been such a joy for me to speak to you. It has not been like work. It's been fun. And it's really great that you've been able to take the time to talk to us today. My absolute pleasure, Lee, and thanks for your time. As always, all of the references that Eddie mentioned will be in the show notes and on our website. Please take the time to catch Eddie's ABC show, Teenage Boss, on ABC iView, and Ultimate Classroom on Template. He's also authored numerous books that are described on his website. And of course, you must watch some, or all, of his classic YouTube videos. What an absolute joy it was for me to speak to Eddie. Thank you so much, Eddie, and I really would love to speak again. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, the ICM Textbooks, a great choice for great quality text for year 5 to 10. And you can find more information about those on our website. Please take the time to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app to spread the word about the joy of maths. Thanks for joining us for this really special episode and I'll see you next time. Bye.